On Monday, October 26th, the Senate confirmed Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This was after a highly contentious nomination process, which happened in part because it happened so close to a presidential election. In part, it was because Barrett's nomination might tip the court in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, maybe even the Affordable Care Act. And we saw four days of hearings in which senators grilled the nominee about uh, whether she thought previous cases had been correctly decided, which is a common thing that senators do during these confirmation hearings. Something else that happened, which is typical, is that uh, J Judge Barrett refused to answer most of these questions on the grounds that doing so might telegraph how she would decide real cases should they come before her court. In the background of all of this, there were concerns about whether the nominee's devotion to Orthodox Catholicism would affect her decisions, whether it would be appropriate to test a nominee by considering her religious views. So these are the kinds of questions that were often asked, the kinds of questions many commentators were debating about. But we could take a step back from all of this and ask, what kinds of questions should the senators really be asking nominees to the highest court in the land? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow instructor at ARI. Today, we're going to be discussing exactly this question. What questions would you want to ask of a Supreme Court nominee? I'll soon by, be joined uh, by my colleague at ARI, Ankar Gatte, a senior fellow at ARI, to discuss this at greater length. Hi, Ankar, are you out there? Yeah, hi, Ben. So uh, maybe we should start by saying a word about how we think of ourselves in relation to this topic and our, and our expertise on it. Neither of us are lawyers. I think that's one of the important things, nor are we legal experts. Even if we don't have a law degree, you could be a legal expert. I think we're not either of those. So the way I think about it is, imagine if you were a senator or just you're thinking about as a, as a citizen, and you elect representatives, one of the things that senators importantly do is conform uh, judges, including Supreme Court justices. What would you want them to be looking at? What would you want them to ask? What would you want them to probe of the nominees? So from a, it's sort of from an educated layman's perspective and from the perspective of we have um, a government that it's our responsibility to preserve a system of government. What would you want senators to be asking about? And, and if you put the, yourself in that role, what would you ask? Yeah, I think this is a totally fair set of questions to come up with. So let's, uh, let's start off with the first thing in the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment to the, Const to the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Uh, we presume, this is something that you'd think the nominees would have views about. Uh, their view about the Bill of Rights and the most important rights that are enumerated in it. It's to secure these rights that governments presumably exist in the first place and justices to the Supreme Court are supposed to be interpreters and defenders of the Constitution and the, bill, the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. So I, I think the first question that I would want to ask Judge Barrett, uh, were she to become justice, she now has, is why do you think rights like these, rights like free speech and freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, maybe freedom of uh, religion are so important? What makes them first on the list of rights to protect? And Ankar, we, we spent some time going through the actual transcripts of the hearings and it turns out, turns out that something like this question did come up in a few places. And what did Judge Barrett have to say? Um, yeah, so let's take what one way the question came up. Uh, this was an, in day three, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska asked this. And the question, as he put it, is, so this is Sass asking, why is there one amendment that has these five freedoms clustered? Why do they hang together? And again, the five are freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom to petition government. Those are the five. And why are they in one amendment? And Barrett's response or part of her response was 
first, I don't know, she said, I don't know what you're quite getting at. What do you mean the common denominator of these five? And he says, yeah, and elaborates a bit on this. And then she says, and this is a little bit of a lengthy quote of what she says. She says, quote, I don't know why actually as a historical matter, those were grouped. I'm sure there's a story that I don't know there about why those appeared in the first amendment altogether rather than being split up in different amendments. I mean, assembly and protest and speech bear more relation to one another than uh, necessarily free exercise, say. But I think they are in the First Amendment, and I think that reflects that those were core values. It, that reflects that the, stat, uh, the states who ratified the Constitution, the original Constitution, on the understanding that a Bill of Rights would be added, wanted protections like that to be included because they were really core to what the new Americans thought was going to be America, close quote. So to me, I think Senator Sass is asking a pretty good question here. It's a version of the question that I would want to ask. And there were a few other senators who asked her similar questions. But I, I have to say, I was unimpressed uh, by this answer, at least on the face of it here. I mean, it sounds like she's saying in response to his question, why are these rights important? To me, her answer sounds like she's saying they're important because the founders thought they were important. Uh, and my follow-up to that is going to be, well, okay, what are they important for? What did the founders think that they were important for? Um, she did basically the same thing when Senator Cruz asked her in a separate session, I think on the second day, uh, why is religious liberty so important? Uh, she says it's important because it's fundamental, because we value religious liberty. I mean, that sounds to me like a circular uh, answer, a question-begging answer. And at one point, Senator Sass tried to give her a little bit more ammunition and say, uh, to argue, it almost sounded like he was arguing that they're connected in a way that relates back to religious liberty because you have to be able to assemble to worship. You have to be able to publish your beliefs. Uh, now we could even ask, and I think we should ask if that's even right, but the fact that she had so little to say about the importance of admittedly such fundamental liberties is at least concerning to me. And it strikes me that these liberties do have something in common. There is a common denominator. And Ankar, this is something you've written about and spoken about before. And I wonder if you'd share more of your views on this topic. I would say first that I don't find her response surprising. So from my reading of the way legal scholars approach the First Amendment, it is like you've got these five pretty disparate things and they happen to be grouped in the First Amendment, they, but they could have been split apart and, and maybe something could have been omitted. So they're taken as five discrete things that are bundled together. I think that's wrong, but I'm not surprised her answer is, I don't really see a connection because she's sort of asked two things. Why are they important and are they interconnected? And I think you're right. Her answer to why they're important is because they're core values. <laughs> so they're important because we think they're important. She doesn't give why we think they're important. And what is their connection? Well, they happen to be listed in the First Amendment. That's sort of their connection. The real connection, I think, or at least one aspect, I, there's actually, I think, two aspects to thinking of why they're in the First Amendment together. The deepest explanation, we'll, we'll get to a, a sub point later on, but the deepest explanation is that they're about intellectual freedom. There are aspects of intellectual freedom that the drafters of the Bill of Rights thought it's important to single these out that government cannot trespass on these. And if you think of it as religion is about the ideas you hold, or at least some of the ideas you hold, beliefs that you hold, and that you can practice these. You can hold these beliefs, you can practice these. Freedom of speech and of the press is again about ideas that you can hold, that you can express, that you can, even if people think you're wrong or it's um, the, they're outraged by the ideas you have and are talking about and trying to advocate for and convince other people of, you have the freedom to do that. You have the freedom to speak, you can publish your ideas. And if you think of, of assembly and petition of the government for redresses, it's again, it's if you disagree with what the government is doing, 
you can put forth your different understanding, your different ideas, and you can say what you're doing is wrong. This is what I think is the right course of action. We should reverse course or change course. You can do that. So you can, again, advocate for your viewpoint against government, even if it's doing something that um, you think is wrong and it shouldn't be doing. They're not, you're not going to be silent. So if you think of it like that, um, and if you think of assembly as you can get together with other people and talk about ideas and then decide, yeah, we're going to petition the government. We think it's doing something wrong. So if you think of it like that, then they are interconnected. There are aspects of intellectual freedom. There's a reason to put them in one amendment, not five separate amendments, as if they were just five discrete things that have nothing to do with one another. But it's, as I said, I think most legal scholars don't go in that direction. It, the law and, and, and sort of interpretation has pushed in the direction you treat everything as, as a discrete thing unconnected to other elements in the, either, even in just one amendment, let alone the rest of the constitution. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the, the fact that these, these rights in the first amendment do have intellectual freedom as their common denominator to me, it sounds like a, a sign that this is a document that is written and promulgated uh, in the Enlightenment period. And I don't think for a moment that Judge Barrett is ignorant of that fact. I don't think that she's stupid. Uh, so the fact that, she's, that she doesn't want to, or that this legal tradition that you're speaking of doesn't want to explicitly acknowledge that kind of thing, that kind of historical fact and its significance, and it gives me really kind of cold comfort, especially when it sounds like there's this push to elevate religious liberty uh, as, as the central uh, right. So, I mean, I think you're right that, yeah, religious liberty in, is a form of intellectual freedom and should be protected for exactly the reasons uh, that you state. But when you think about, well, why should it be protected? Uh, is it because religion is so important or because ideas are so important? Uh, especially SAS trying to single it out and she's not pushing back against that, that raises questions for me. You also see the same uh, kind of idea coming up in a later exchange with Senator Hawley of Missouri, uh, where, Senator, where Judge Barrett actually defended a decision that she made for the Seventh Circuit, where basically uh, during the lockdowns, the governor of Illinois uh, he made an exception to the lockdowns basically for religious assembly. And the, interestingly, the, the Illinois Republicans sued saying, well, if you can make uh, an exception for assemblies, people to get together and talk about religious ideas, why can't you let us have a political convention where we do the same thing? Uh, and basically the Seventh Circuit ruled against the Republicans and Judge Barrett was okay with that. And she explains her reason as saying, well, religious liberty is specifically singled out in a way that getting assembly for political purposes is not. And yet you'd think, you know, by the logic of these are all related to intellectual freedom, either you uh, make no exemptions at all uh, for, you know, for the, the lockdowns or you should, you should let them all happen. And she, but she thinks there's something very special about religious liberty that's apparently not connected with its status as a form of intellectual freedom. Do you have thoughts on uh, that kind of perspective? Of yeah, I, I agree that there's something ominous about it. In, to the ex, that is to the extent that she thinks, or at least the way she answered, that the answer is if there is a common denominator, it's about religion. And so it's thinking, it's as though when you say freedom of the press, there's a qualifier, freedom of the religious press. And when you say freedom of assembly, it's as though there's a qualifier, freedom for religious assembly, that the whole First Amendment is essentially about religion and it has to be read like that. And I do not think that is true at all. So even if you just take what's specified in the First Amendment, it's freedom of the press, it's freedom of assembly. It's not just freedom of the religious press or religious assembly. So just on the face of it, it would be, no, if, if you can make an exemption because religion is mentioned in the First Amendment, you can and should make an exemption, exception for political assembly because the, the, the idea of political assembly and to uh, 
petition government. I mean, that's a political, that's not religious. You can do that if you're an atheist and you have the right to do that according to the first amendment if you're an atheist. So the idea just that uh, sort of on the narrow grounds that the first amendment is, it's about religion so we can make exceptions there but not for political assemblies. I think that is really mistaken. But it also, the, there's the, the element that the, the First Amendment, or if you think a little more broadly, the, the Bill of Rights, and when rights are enumerated, they have a special status as they're more entitled to protection. And so it's, there's more force that you have to make exceptions when they pass laws that, oh, this seems like it would interfere with uh, the free exercise of religion. If, you, if you're banning religious gatherings because of COVID-19, that seems to be an interference with free exercise of religion. And because that's listed in the Bill of Rights, that it, it means it's entitled to more protection than other rights. And I think that is just, that's a misreading of the Bill of Rights, that it's, they're not being singled out because they deserve more protection or they have some special status. There's a reason I think they're being singled out. But no, the reason is not, okay, these deserve protection and other rights don't or don't as much. And so when they're carving out exceptions, I think that's part of how they're thinking. Well, we have to make an exception because I can see this explicitly listed in the Bill of Rights. And I think that's a mistake of how to think about it. Yeah, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about uh, the issue of enumerated versus unenumerated rights later on. But let's, let's talk about one last thing about the First Amendment uh, one way to test the idea of whether what all of the rights enumerated there have in common with each other is intellectual freedom is to see uh, how well the one last other part of the First Amendment integrates with that, uh, which is the clause about how Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. Uh, one thing I'd be interested to ask the judge about is about how that clause relates to the other liberties that are protected by the amendment. And this is not a question that was asked in so many words of the judge, but the issue came up in an exchange that she had with Senator Cornyn of Texas. And he uh, relays to her a case in which there were uh, prayers given at uh, football games at public schools in Texas. And he notes how the ACLU sued here, I'm quoting him, the ACLU sued the school district and obviously made, all it, made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And I'm not going to ask you your opinion on the outcome of the case. What troubles me the most, what troubled me the most about that experience is when the Supreme Court struck down or held that practice unconstitutional and in violation of the establishment clause. And then he asks her to talk about uh, this, about the establishment clause, basically. And here's what she says uh, when she, about her experience talking about this issue with Justice Scalia when she was interviewing for her clerkship with him. She says, I fell down a rabbit hole of trying to explain without success, because it is a very complicated area of law, how one might see one's way through the thicket of balancing the establishment clause against the free exercise clause. It's a notoriously difficult area of the law and to the extent that there is a tension in the court's cases, it's been something that the court has struggled with, you know, for decades to try to come to a sensible way to apply both of those clauses. Now, just listening to that exchange as a legal layman, I'm a little baffled because I would think just on the face of it, there's no tension at all between the idea that Congress shouldn't establish a religion and the idea that people should be able to exercise their religious freely because saying that Congress can't establish a religion, a religion is just a way of protecting people's free exercise. It's saying there's not gonna be an official state church that stops people from practicing religions contrary to that church or uh, no religion at all for that matter. And so at, what's going on here? Why do they think that there's a conflict between the two of these? And are they, are they right about that? What do you think, Uncle? So again, I'm sympathetic to her answer in the sense that this is 
there, it is a rabbit hole that I think it is very complex what has happened in First Amendment uh, law or and in, in Supreme Court decisions. But the question, again, if we were senators, so the follow-up question I would ask her is, isn't it a problem when we've got to the stage of you have to try to balance two clauses as though they were in conflict? Do you really think the people who authored the First Amendment and think of her as an originalist that she's very um, focused on, okay, this is the original text and this is why they were um, writing this down as law. Do you really think they thought that these two clauses are in tension and what the court's going to have to do is to balance these two? And I think the answer is pretty clearly no, they don't think that there's a tension. So there's two aspects to think about here. One, why originally they think there's no tension and you don't have to balance one. And if you give preference to one, that means you're diminishing the other or vice versa. I mean, that's what it means to balance. One loses, the other wins. Um, why didn't they think that? And why is it true that today that's how it's thought about? And so, so there's two aspects. And the first aspect, I think, so put it to put it very briefly, there's more detail and complexity than this. But very briefly, it's the free exercise clause is saying government can't penalize you for the exercise of your religion. So if you're a Catholic, a Protestant, a Buddhist, a Muslim, it can't say no that you can't use that prayer book, you can't engage in this kind of um, form of worship, you're free to exercise the religion of your choice and what you're committed to. So it can't penalize someone because of their particular religion or just the fact that they're religious and not an atheist. And the establishment clause is the government can't reward a particular religion or even a set of religions. It couldn't say, okay, yeah, we're Christianity. That's what we're funding. You can be a Protestant, a Catholic. We're not gonna care about that, but we're funding Christianity and we're not funding Judaism or Islam or something like that. It can't do that. It can't um, give favors and encourage a particular religion. So one's more about that it can't prohibit certain things. And the other is it can't encourage, fund, give money to help establish a particular religion. And the founders, I think, rightly thought, yeah, these two are compatible, that the government's not going to do either of these ones. That's compatible. And this is what the First Amendment is being written to ensure that this is the, the direction and trajectory of American, of American law. But once, so that's the first of why at the founding, I think they're thought of as these are aspects of intellectual freedom. They're different aspects, but they're completely compatible and they integrate into, um, this is protection of intellectual freedom, particularly in the religious area. Yeah, so why do they think they don't integrate even though there's good reason to think they do? Yeah, so I think, when you look at what happens in American law and American government, it's you get growing and growing and growing power of the state in different areas of people's lives. And if you think in the intellectual realm, one of the biggest areas is the government's power and control in the field of education. And that's particularly K through 12 education, public, what people call public schools, but it's really government run schools of K through 12, but it extends and extends more and more into colleges and universities, public colleges, and, and even private ones. The amount of government money that's flowing into private colleges is considerable. When that happens, you get a tension between these two things. Um, so, and take one common bone of contention, prayer in public schools. If the government is funding a public school and it allows prayer in public schools, then it looks like, well, it's helping to establish a particular religion. And whether you start off with a Catholic prayer at this start of the day, or just sort of a non-denominational Christian prayer, it's still, it look what it governments looks like it's helping to establish a particular religious viewpoint. And that the first amendment's supposed to um, prohibit government from doing that. But then if you think, um, okay, so it prohibits that, 
there's all kinds of religious people who have to fund public schools. They often send their kids to public schools. They can't both pay taxes for public schools and afford a private school. So they're sending their kids to public schools and their kids are prohibited from prayer and so on. So isn't that interference with free exercise? And there's no resolution to this other than to say, yeah, the problem is government should not be in control of education. It should not have this power. It, and it, it's an interference in the end. This is, again, a complicated story. But I think public education is an interference with intellectual freedom. And when you give the government that much power to interfere in um, public education, you get this kind of conflict that it seems like if it's not, if it's um, not establishing something, if, it, if that says, no, we can't do that, we can't have prayer in public schools, it's interfering with people's religious freedom. And that's why, and the, I mean, there's a lot of cases like that, but that's one kind of example where it's, yeah, these seem to be intention. And you, if you're elevating one, you're denigrating the other or vice versa. It seems like if we were to pay more attention to the, to the overall meaning of the First Amendment uh, about how it's a, it's, a, it's there to protect intellectual freedom generally, not just, uh, not just religious liberty, but really anybody's intellectual or philosophical freedom, that that would then probably have implications for how we think about the whole idea of public education and whether it's justifiable and uh, whether, uh, you know, as you say, rewarding uh, a certain set of ideas, whether religious or otherwise, uh, is going to end up uh, ultimately interfering with, with someone's intellectual freedom, even if they're not uh, religious. Yeah, um, definitely. So we've already had a few, one question coming in about the abortion issue. Uh, and I mentioned at the top that obviously one of the reasons why Judge Barrett's nomination was so contentious is because people are concerned uh, that she might rule, to, uh, she might overrule, she might help vote to rule, overrule Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is a controversy that often comes up uh, because there's a question of whether there is a right to abortion. And critics of Roe v. Wade will say it was wrongly decided because there's no enumerated right to abortion in the Bill of Rights. Uh, we said earlier we were going to talk about the issue of enumerated versus unenumerated rights. And I, I know that there was a question you wanted to ask, uh, you would have wanted to ask the judge on this matter. Yes. Yeah, so the, I would ask about enumerated rights, and we were talking about one of the crucial ones is the understanding of the First Amendment. But I would ask as well about unenumerated rights, that the Bill of Rights is not trying to be, and sort of explicitly in the Ninth Amendment says that this is not an exhaustive list of people's rights. There's no attempt that we're trying to get anywhere close to an exhaustive list of um, the citizens' rights. And therefore, the fact that something here is not mentioned, it's not enumerated in the Bill of Rights, is there's no implication that a person still doesn't have that right. And so a question would be to any nominee uh, that I would, I would ask is what, okay, we, we've talked some about enumerated rights and we know there's a Bill of Rights, what do you think are some unenumerated rights that citizens have that are not mentioned in the Bill of Rights, but it's important for a judge to understand that and take seriously the Ninth Amendment? And what do you think the meaning of that is? How do you interpret that? How does that inform your judicial decisions? And again, she was asked some of that, and you can... Uh, talk about what she was asked. I didn't find her answer satisfactory. Yeah, so this happened on day two and the question came from uh, Senator Kennedy of Louisiana who asked her just straightforward about what the Ninth Amendment means. And this was her first stab at an answer. Uh, very briefly, she said, well, the Ninth Amendment was once famously described by Judge Bork as an ink blot. The Ninth Amendment has not been fleshed out in litigation. I don't think it's an inkblot, just to be clear, but it's not one that there's a whole lot of case law on. And that was all she had to say in response to that question. So perhaps because she, there was a sense she could have said more, uh, Senator Sass uh, asked her the next day uh, a similar question. 
And she again repeated, well, there's not a lot of doctrine about this. It says the individual's rights are preserved, that those not expressly granted are taken away. And she does then give a little bit more historical context for why this amendment was included. She says, many states objected to the fact there was no Bill of Rights. The original idea when the original constitution, and by that I mean the beginning, beginning with Article One, moving up, was that the very structure of government protected rights. And there wasn't thought to be a need to have a Bill of Rights because it was thought that the separation of powers and the structure of federalism would be a protection for those rights. Uh, but those who really felt like they wanted the additional protection prevailed and they got the Bill of Rights. And then uh, later she says, the assumption was that if Congress had limited power, it wouldn't have the ability to infringe on rights in the first place. And of course, at that time, the constitution was ratified, the states were thought to have uh, that power, there's some dot, dot, dots here, because the people are closer to their state governments, that citizens can have different policies in states and more influence over their state governments and their state legislatures than the federal government. So she's, she's sort of talking around the issue here of the fact that, well, the, uh, there was, uh, they, they didn't think they needed a Bill of Rights in the first place, that the protection of liberties was already implicit in the structure. So then when a Bill of Rights was added, uh, there was the additional thought, well, let's remind people that we already thought that the structure protected those liberties. But she's still not saying a lot here. She's definitely not answering the question directly of whether there are any enumerated right, unenumerated rights. Um, so what, what do you think of this exchange and its significance, Ankar? Yeah, I found it, like you, I think what you just said, way too vague. And to say it's that the structure of the government is what protects our rights, I think is um, at most or at best a non-essential. The structure of government is important, but you have to take seriously the purpose of government and the purpose of the constitution. And if you thought of the constitution as what it's doing, it's, it starts off with the view that government can wield unlimited power in every area of life. It can exert total control. And what the constitution is doing is removing powers from the government and saying, you can't do this and you can't do that. And, you can't. and if it doesn't say explicitly that you cannot do X or Y, you cannot uh, infringe on the freedom of speech, again, take the First Amendment, then it can do that. So if the, if the Constitution doesn't explicitly prohibit something, the government has the power. And I think it's exactly the reverse. And it, it's, I mean, this is, I would ask a judge this explicitly about how they think of the basic purpose and function of the Constitution. And I think of it as, as it's granting from delegates powers to the federal government. And if the power's not delegated, the government doesn't possess it. So it's exactly the reverse. If you can't show this is where the government has this power, it doesn't have it. Not if you can't show it's prohibited to the government, then it has this power. And this then informs your reading of the Bill of Rights. I do not think of the Bill of Rights as what it's trying to do is list the most fundamental rights that citizens have. The, if you want the most fundamental rights, that's the Declaration of Independence. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And really the Declaration should have property in there. It doesn't for reasons I think connected to slavery, but it's life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are the fundamental rights. I think what the Bill of Rights is doing is making crystal clear that we have not delegated some powers to government. Whatever, however you may interpret what we've delegated, you can't interpret it as we've delegated these powers. And the reason it's not what we're trying to do is list the most fundamental rights the citizen possesses. I think what they're doing is thinking historically and, but, but, but mainly that's sort of in their context. So historically means 200 some years ago, but for them, it's their contemporary context of thinking, what are the things government typically infringes on? What are powers it typically takes that we don't want the American form of government to take? And then I think if you, if you think it's, it's things like interference with press, not allowing people to assemble and so to oppose the government, um, 
soldiers being quartered in people's houses. It's, it's a list of thinking of these are government powers we don't want government to have. And we're making that clear, not we're trying to list the fundamental rights of the citizens. And that's why it's a huge question to ask Okay, so what are the fundamental rights of a citizen? They're not the 10 things in the Bill of Rights. And if they're not there, there's no such thing. And if a judge can't give you, like here are unenumerated rights that are really important, but still unenumerated, I'm suspicious that they have a basic understanding of the constitution. And so to both of their credit, I should mention that at one point in the same exchange, Senator Sass did say that uh, he thought prior to the structure, uh, prior to the Bill of Rights, they thought the structure of the Constitution was saying we don't need to enumerate rights because the assumption is you have a right unless a prohibition has been created. Uh, and she says that she finds that eloquent. However, uh, I should also mention that the topic of the Declaration of Independence came up in that same exchange. And she says, the Declaration of Independence is an expression of our ideas, expression of our desire to be free of England. It's not law, however, the Constitution is law. So the Constitution is our foundational law and governing document. And while the Declaration of Independence tells us a lot about history and about the roots of our Republic, it isn't binding law. Well, she might be right that it's not exactly binding law, but I, your point that it's the explicit statement of what our enumerated rights are and what the foundational principles concerning our rights are is pretty important. And she seems to be giving it a little bit of short shrift there. And I would say, in addition, especially as this connects to the abortion controversy, this is pretty important because, well, of course, it's true that there's no right to abortion enumerated in the Constitution, nor is there uh, a right to privacy as is invoked uh, by Roe v. Wade as emanating from the penumbra uh, of, of the Bill of Rights. Actually, I think it was originally in uh, Griswold versus Connecticut where that was invoked. But Roe still does cite liberty rights uh, in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment as uh, the basis for abortion rights. Uh, and I mean, that is straight out of the Declaration of Independence. And that often gets short shrifted, I think, by conservative critiques of Roe. And Roe's got a lot of problems with it, but that's one of its strengths, I think, at least. Yeah, so you're saying what gets short shrifted is they focus on privacy. They don't focus on the decision talks about a right to liberty. Right. And are you, if you're saying that Roe v. Wade is decided incorrectly, are you saying we don't have a right to liberty because I can't find it in the Bill of Rights? That, 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 is, that is the question that I would ask, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we, had, we did have one other chunk of material we might have wanted to discuss, but we have about 20 minutes left. Do you think we should move to questions? There is one question already submitted that's related to that material. Uh, someone who asked, I want to know more about her philosophy of law. Does she think laws ought to protect individual rights or not? Um, what do you think we should do? We can talk very briefly about it, and then I think we should turn to some questions. So I'll remind people that, uh, please, if you want to ask a question through Zoom, best place to do that is by clicking the Q&A button that's underneath your Zoom screen. Otherwise, I am still looking at Super Chat, and I, there were a couple of, there's a couple of Super Chat donations that came in. Uh, thank you for those. One of them came with a question I would like to ask where law derives from. And so this is related to what we're about to discuss, too. And we already had one question, which was what relevance is the Declaration of Independence for Supreme Court decisions. And we've talked about that some that I think it, it has to inform the reading of the Ninth Amendment. Uh, and so it's very important, I think, to think about the Declaration of Independence in, in conjunction with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. On the issue of a kind of judicial philosophy, I think it's clear that she, uh, Barrett, was putting herself into the category of an ori originalist, textualist, very much in the mold of Scalia. And obviously mo much more is known about Scalia's views than hers because, I mean, she's 44, hasn't been a judge for that long. There's that, not that many decisions, whereas Scalia had a whole career and wrote many opinions, dissents and so on. So I think there's a, a richer picture of his view 
but she's putting herself squarely in his camp. I think not that he, she literally agrees with everything, but she agrees with the basic approach. And I think the basic approach to rights is very revealing of the way an originalist thinks. And particularly because an religious, uh, originalist is focused on the text and, and Scalia's sort of version of this, it's um, way too much deference to democracy, to majorities, that you have to write into the law that you have certain rights. And if you don't, you don't have that right. So it's way far on the, on the spectrum of all you have is enumerated rights. There really are no such thing as unenumerated Right, so that's that they're an ink blot. You could read anything into it, whatever mm. you want, and that's not law. Like the AKA law can't be like that. So it's it's close to meaningless. And I think Scalia's view is it's meaningless. Her, she said, in, as you quoted in the testimony, well, I don't think they're an ink blot, but she didn't say what she thought they are. She didn't give any positive characterization. And Scalia's on record. I mean, these are famous things that he's said. Do you want to write to an abortion? created in the way that most rights are created in a democratic society. Persuade your fellow citizens and enact it into law. You think there's a right to suicide? Do it the way the people of Oregon did and pass a law. Don't come to the Supreme Court. And that's telling you, I think, pretty directly that there's no such thing as unenumerated rights. If you can't point to a particular clause in the Constitution listing this, then I, who am a textualist and originalist, I can't find it here, and you don't have it. And that, in a deeper way, is that's a perspective that law, and particularly constitutional law, and thinking about rights, they're not principles. A principle is, um, it's, a, it's a fundamental generalization that's encompassing a lot of territory. They're not concrete things. You can't, if, if you think of the right to liberty, you can't generate a concrete list of all the things that fall under the right to liberty. I have a right to go outside when it's in the morning. I have a right to go outside in the evening. I mean, if you thinking of law as just these concrete rules, then it's, you have to specify it in minute detail. And if you don't, it's not part of the law. And I think that's very much the mentality of Scalia and from her testimony and from some of her writings I've read, I think that's how she thinks too, maybe not as exactly the same as Scalia, but she's very much in that mold. And if I could venture a, a little bit more interpretation of what's going on there. So there's two things there. There's, you're suggesting they're reading laws as these really concrete bound rules. But at the same time, well, where do the concrete bound rules come from? Uh, the most they're able to say is, well, this is what the majority decides at the moment. And you know, not too different from the religious view that there are concrete bound commandments that God hands down because of whatever he happens to will at the moment. And one place where this comes out, where it's clear that they're not thinking of these as fundamental principles that are that are generalizations that apply in different circumstances, different ways, is uh, the, the way that she thinks about precedent. And so uh, there's been uh, uh, some discussion of her view that there are certain super precedents. Uh, when it comes up, uh, should the courts adopt the rule of stare decisis and stay the court and keep with previous precedents? And sometimes she thinks they should be overruled precedents by previous uh, Supreme Courts should be overruled, but sometimes it's a super precedent and there's a lot of deference you have to have to it. Well, one of the cases that she cites as a super precedent is Brown versus Board of Education, uh, which of course overturns Plessy versus Ferguson, outrule, uh, outlaws uh, state sanctions racial discrimination. And you have to think about how does, how does saying that Brown is a super precedent cohere with her originalism, because her idea of originalism is you interpret a law according to the text uh, that is, in her view, she uses what she calls public meaning originalism, how the public would have understood those words at the time it was adopted. Well, Brown, the board, 
justified its overturning of Plessy on the basis of the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in the 1860s. Could it have been that the public generally at that time had understood the idea that there should be equal protection of the laws to mean therefore public schools should be racially integrated? I mean, I, have to, I think that's a hard sell for me to, under, to think that that's what the public in the 1860s could have meant. And so I suspect that the way she's thinking about this, given some of the things that she's written about precedent is, well, that's what the democratic will meant in the 1860s, but now the democratic will in the 1960s has changed. Uh, and that's why it's okay to overturn a previous precedent. This is the kind of thing that she mentions in some of her writings about when it's okay to overturn precedent. Uh, but there again, yeah, it's, there are these concrete bound rules where do they come from? Something like the democratic will of the majority. Uh, it's hard to understand how that's a perspective that's consistent with thinking that protection of individual rights is the fundamental purpose of government. Do you have any reactions to that? I mean, particularly if you think of the original American conception of rights, that there are principles that uh, exist pre-government in the sense they're principles that are going to be used to shape the very purpose, function, and nature of government. That They're not democratically enacted. They're rather principles in which you create a government, indeed a government that strips the majority of its unlimited power. So the, the American form of government is explicitly anti-democratic. It's, it's not majority will should rule because it's the majority. It's a government is instituted to protect each individual's rights, regardless of what the majority thinks in a particular situation of, well, we don't like that this person has these rights. And that's not open to vote to majority decision. So it's, it's very fundamental to the view that where rights come from is just the majority says these are our rights and has enacted them into law. And so that's what your rights are. And I think this, you have to get, I think it's right to think of precedent and super precedent as it's used sometimes in law as there seems to be a conflict with originalism that, I mean, if a president is wrong, why wouldn't you overturn it if what is real law is the original meaning? And when she's asked about Roe v. Wade, she doesn't think this is a super precedent. And she does for something like Brown v. Board of Education. And why? And basically the reason is, a lot of people object to Roe v. Wade, and you can't find a lot of people objecting to Brown v. Board of Education. Yeah. And if there were, it would lose its status as a super president. And that shows you how fundamental the issue of the democratic will is to the view about rights. I think. Yeah, that's the way I see it too. Um, we have a few other questions that have come in. Uh, related to some of the issues we've discussed about enumerated versus unenumerated, one question in Zoom asks, do you think we would be better off without the Bill of Rights? Does the Bill of Rights, does its presence create a presumption that a right has to be enumerated uh, to really be a right? My view of that is I'm at the founding and early on, I'm sympathetic to the view that we should not have a Bill of Rights that the whole focus on the constitution has to be, these are powers we've granted um, to government by delegation and by a whole procedure to ratify the constitution. These are the powers the government has. And if it's not listed here, it doesn't have the power. And if we wanna amend the constitution, so on, it's to amend it to give the government a power that it currently doesn't have. But when it starts to go bad, and you start to get culturally the view, no government has or should have unli virtually unlimited power, but vastly more power than what has been granted to it by the constitution. Then the Bill of Rights serves as a, um, at least a hurdle that the government has to get over. So this is why for something like the first amendment and if there's gonna be interference with freedom of speech and so on, 
it's a harder for government to do that because now people can point to and say, yeah, but isn't this going against the First Amendment versus against an unenumerated right? It's harder to make that argument in a cultural context where the idea is no government has or should have total or near total power and rights are somehow, they're a myth, they don't really make sense. They're a relic of a religious age that God granted these rights. But no, if you don't, if you're more a modern person, how can you possibly think that? So, and in that context, I think the Bill of Rights served a function, but it, I don't think originally, it opens the idea that it's, yeah, the constitution is not a grant of power. It's a way of trying to stop a government from um, wielding unlimited power. And it's that, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. There is a question that came in on Zoom related to this. How can you in simple language pin down that rights are guaranteed fundamentally and that no majority, no matter how large, uh, can take away uh, these rights from any individual? I wonder if, if that question answers itself. If she, the, the questioner stated it rather well. That would be a way to state it. Uh, but perhaps what the questioner is wondering is, is there a way to make that explicit in legal form, uh, especially if uh, we don't think that the, the Bill of Rights was the best way to do it, uh, what might have been a better way uh, to make this explicit, let's say, in the setup of the Constitution? What do you take? I mean, maybe you can answer that because I'm not sure I'm quite understanding the question. Well, I'm not sure if I understood it either. So I, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the question is, if what should the founders have done instead of adopt a Bill of Rights to make the purpose of government explicit? It was the Declaration of Independence enough? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you didn't think the structure uh, of the Constitution was, was the fundamental. So is there some other formulation in the constitution that could have been added and short of giving enumerated rights that, that would have helped? I mean, I'm low to rewrite the constitution and putting the things like in the context that you could do it better than what they did. Fair but enough. if I could sort of go back in history and edit, so, but I don't want to take this as a sliding of the founding fathers or something like that. I would have a different preamble. I would mm -hmm. have a preamble more like the Declaration of Independence that's talking about rights, about the purpose of government, it's created to secure these rights. So something like that as the preamble versus what the preamble is, I think would have been far superior. And then something about what this constitution is doing is specifying powers that the government has. And if it's not specified, it doesn't have it. So the equivalent of the ninth amendment, but for the powers of government, not for like if it's not enumerated here, it doesn't mean citizens don't possess it. Something explicit about if the power is not granted here, a government doesn't possess it. Um, I think those two would have made the constitution better than what it is. But as Notably, I say, the, the preamble had the stuff about we the people in order to promote the general welfare, which is a, which is a clause that's been abused uh, to an unimaginable extent. Yes. There was a question that came in on Zoom and maybe this, uh, unless we get, oh, there's another one that came in. I haven't seen that yet. Let's see. Well, let's let's take the, the first one about how Barrett is religious and believes abortion is murder. Therefore, how can she abide by Roe v. Wade? There's some things to discuss here about, about the role of precedent. So, I, I don't know uh, how she will vote on these kinds of things, um, but it's true that she's on record believing that abortion is murder. Now, the way she's tried to answer the questions that have come up about this is first of all, to say that she'll put her religious personal moral views aside when applying the law. And she does think that Roe v. Wade is a precedent as you pointed out before, she doesn't think that it's what she calls a super precedent. She thinks there's sufficient controversy about it that uh, there's, it's conceivable that a court could overturn it. Um, she does, in some of her writings on, on precedent, talk about the kinds of considerations that a judge should take into account when deciding whether or not to overturn a precedent. So for instance, uh, and she, she mentioned this 
uh, several points in the hearings uh, that there's such a thing as what they call reliance interests, where uh, even if a judge thinks that a previous decision was incorrectly decided, that, well, it's been, it was nonetheless decided and people have started to plan their lives around it and the laws and the institutions have done so. And so that's at least a point in favor of a kind of presumption that the decision should stand. But she also doesn't think that these reliance interests are definitive. Um, you know, another factor again, as we discussed, is like what is the, the public uh, majority opinion uh, of, of the matter? And as you mentioned before, the fact that there are at least a lot of people who object to Roe is something she would take into consideration. But I would be curious to see what happens uh, in a future uh, administration and Congress. I mean, it's, it's at least plausible that uh, if there's a democratic Congress and a democratic president, there is a push uh, by many in uh, the, the, the democratic leadership to pass a law called the Women's Health Protection Act, which would basically codify Roe into law and basically guarantee protection of abortion rights as a matter of statute uh, on a national level. Now, if that happens, it, that would be what she would ordinarily describe as the, the democratic will exercising uh, its, its prerogative to pass a law. Uh, and it would have done exactly what Justice Scalia said uh, should need to be done, basically in order for a, some kind of uh, abortion access to be protected. And so what would she do in that case? Uh, that would be an interesting uh, test. And I don't know if that law will actually pass, but um, it's, if it doesn't, it, it will be, I, I suspect, more of the same kind of thing that we've seen in recent decisions, like in the June Medical Services decision of a few months ago, which we also did a podcast about, uh, where, yeah, the majority affirmed precedent, both in Roe and in uh, uh, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case, though, yes, uh, Justice Roberts, who sort of cast the tie-breaking vote there, did leave open the possibility that the states who were passing laws could write laws that had fewer of the problems as the that the Louisiana law did, where he'd be more open to uh, allowing them uh, to pass muster. And I mean, there's reason to think Barrett would agree with that as well. Well, I guess we'll have to see. I want to take a different aspect of the question. Sure. Because I, I think it's it's a wrong way to view the Supreme Court in general. So the, the question was, well, if she's very religious, how can she abide by Roe v. Wade? And so there's the kind of implication, or more than an implication, that the way Supreme Court justices function is there's a direct line from their personal views, personal philosophy, and the decisions that they render. So she's Catholic, a professor at Notre Dame. And so of course she's against abortion. So of course she's gonna rule against Roe v. Wade. And I think that's it's, that's not the right way to look at the Supreme Court justice, uh, the Supreme Court in general. You might find a justice who you think is pretty much just taking his personal views and it's really shaping the decision in this kind of direct way. I'm against abortion, therefore the law has to be that abortion is wrong. But I think much more typically, and I think I haven't seen evidence to think this is not true of Barrett, is they have a whole approach to the law, which they take seriously, and it is their approach, and you can see it in their thinking about the law, and when they're writing uh, decisions, you can see it in the reasoning that they give. Now, there's not a big history for her because she has not been a judge for a long time, but you can see Scalia, Scalia has a whole judicial philosophy that he's I think really does inform how he thinks about the law. And she's in that mold. So it's it's the issue that, to think about what she would do with Roe v. Wade. The issue is to think about what does her judicial philosophy and approach entail about Roe v. Wade, not what it, she's a Catholic, therefore what is she going to do with Roe v. Wade? Now, I would say that 
I think the methodology of originalism textualism is particularly attractive to someone who finds religion attractive. And so there is that kind of indirect connection that it's, it's you're going by what, and both Scalia and Barrett will say this, you're going by tradition and history, sort of what the your ancestors said, that's originalism is going back to the original source. So, and there's an element that religion is very tradition bound. Um, that's what you, what, hones you, hems you in, that's what you abide by. So there is an element like that, I think, in terms of the judicial uh, philosophy and approach, but it's not just a straight, she's a Catholic, so she's going to rule against abortion. I, I think you're right about that. Well, we're at time, so I think we should wrap up with a few uh, reminders and announcements. Uh, one thing that I would like to point our audience to, there have been people asking questions, in fact, just a moment ago in Zoom, how do you define a right? That's a question that you could ask Judge Barrett. Well, if you're interested in learning more about Ayn Rand's answer to that question, check out her essay, Man's Rights, which is available on the Institute's website. That's where she lays out her view. Rights are neither granted by God nor by uh, the democratic will or by government. And also like to recommend a book on the subject of judicial review by a member of the Institute's board of directors, uh, the philosopher Tara Smith, Judicial Review in an Objective Legal System. Uh, it surveys a number of the different uh, juris uh, jurisprudential philosophies we've talked about today, including originalism. Uh, and uh, Dr. Smith has, I think, very interesting critiques of that view uh, and what a better approach to uh, uh, judicial uh, oversight would look like. We'd like to thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed watching this broadcast, the best thing that you can do is to follow us on social media. And if you have questions about things we discussed today, or if you want to suggest topics for future episodes of New Ideal Live, please send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We, we can't answer all these, but we definitely read everything that comes in. We have done episodes in the past based on uh, viewer suggestions. So uh, thanks again, Ankar, uh, for joining us today. This was a very interesting conversation. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.